Welcome to 242, a podcast of the Buffalo Vineyard Church, where we explore topics that are relevant and meaningful to our lives as followers of King Jesus. This is episode number five. I'm going to be talking with Aaron Belleville. We have a discussion of scripture and truth, and we talk about different kinds of truth. We talk about the lenses that we wear when we read scripture. We talk about the importance of paying attention to genre when we're reading scripture. We spend some time discussing the idea of inerrancy and scripture. And finally, we spend a little bit of time talking about scripture and what it says about violence and about slavery. Well, Aaron, thanks for joining me again. Um, Yeah, why don't you just, in case somebody's hearing this podcast and hasn't listened to the other one, why don't you just briefly introduce yourself? Who, Who are you? Yeah, thank you, Steve, for having me back. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, so I'm Aaron Belleville. I have been going to Buffalo Vineyard for about seven years now. Uh, my wife, Carissa, and I, and our uh, two children, Eleanor and Ezekiel. And uh, we live in South Buffalo, and I'm an urban farmer. There you go. That's a so great that, introduction. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Well, so our last conversation, we talked essentially about certainty and uncertainty and and kind of their role in in faith. Right. But a lot of that was really through the lens of I guess what, well, how God has been at work in your life over the last few years and, and ultimately over your whole life. Right. Right. Um, and I think this conversation ties in with that one in that really we want to talk a little bit about truth and the, the, the way truth works for, for people of faith. Um, and even specifically, you know, if, if we're talking about truth, we're talking about scripture, but also we're, if we're talking about truth, we're probably also talking about science. Yeah, uh, and so that's that's kind of the the broad introduction to our our topic of conversation today. Is that fair? Well, sure. Truth is a very very central part of our faith. So I mean, it, it's something that we can't really talk about our faith journey without talking about truth. So, well, and you said you had a story that you wanted to start with, and I don't actually. You asked me if I remembered this, and I don't totally remember it. But it doesn't. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that 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 we wouldn't do. So I'm, <laughs> I'm sure it happened. I'm not saying it didn't happen. Sure. So I'm so, looking yeah. forward to hearing you recount this story. And I think it had something to do with truth and interpreting scripture, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think this is probably a good place to start with our conversation today, because um, this is kind of where it, there was maybe a, a paradigm shift in my mind about mm. like um, scripture and, you know, how we even read the Bible. So um this is back in, in 2014, I uh, was doing the BUMP internship, Buffalo Urban uh, Mission Partnership, and I, um, so we, we had a Tuesday morning class that we, we went together every week, uh, you know, talked about theology, talked about the Bible, talked about, you know, all matters of faith, really, um, and I remember one of the very first classes uh, that fall was, um, the speaker introduced the class, and he asked the question, um, through which lens do you read the Bible? And, it, you know, it, it kind of seemed like a, a kind of irrelevant question, I guess, to me at the time. You know, I answered to myself, I, I, I don't read it through any, I don't read it through any lens. Mm. I just read the read it at face value for what it is, you know? I don't read it through a lens. Um, by the end of that class, I realized how very wrong I was about that. <laughs> um you know, and learn about all these like lenses and biases that we don't even realize we have on mm-hmm. when we're coming to scripture, when we're reading the Bible. So my whole life I'd been reading the, the Bible through a, through a modern lens, through a, a Western lens and an American lens, yeah. 21st century, like all these things, like we're, we're a product of our environment. So like wherever we are and whenever we live, we're going to, our way we view things is going to be determined by that yep, in a, in a very big way in ways that we're not even aware of. It's kind of like if somebody asked you, why do you talk with that accent? And it's the first time you realize that everybody has an accent, not, not everybody, but you, but it's like, Oh yeah, that's ah, right. that's, I actually yeah, I have yeah. an accent too. That's a great, that's a great point. And I like, just didn't know it. A person's not really aware of their accent until they travel. You know, right. you go a little bit away from your, from where you grew up, you know, you go you to talk a, funny. Yeah. Like you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> That's funny. I was thinking you guys all talk funny. <laughs> right. Exactly. So it's like, no, I'm the one who talks normal. Everybody else has the accents, you know? <laughs> yeah. But if, uh, of course, you know, you know, you know, when you're, uh, get out in the world and you encounter more people, you realize just, you know, how not like everybody else you are, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
So, I mean, that's a very good analogy right there as to how we um, uh, come to Scripture with our, um, you know, preconceived biases and just the way we've been shaped by our own experiences and our particular geographies and our time and place. Yeah. Well, so so I don't know if there's more to the story or if that's just like kind of that moment that for you pointed you on a journey of yeah, re- rethinking I mean, how you engage with Scripture. For me, that, that was a, for me, that was a pretty big aha moment. Hmm. And I mean, I, I don't think the things like drastically changed after that, but maybe that was the very first step on this evolving journey that I've been on towards like engaging with, with scripture in, in a much uh, different way than I traditionally uh, was, Yeah, I guess, um, if that's safe to say. You know, yeah. that was maybe the very first step on that long process. And as I've come to dig in more and um, learn more and... Um, you know, get serious about like criticism and stuff, historical criticism, you mm-hmm. start to realize, oh, there's a, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that I've never really yeah. taken into account. Yep. Well, so what, um, maybe if you were going to describe, if you can, the lens through which you used to read scripture and you, you, you kind of gave some labels to that, but you could talk about like what, you know, sitting in that class thinking, I just read it at face value. What did you mean by that? And how have you come to engage with scripture? Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, that's a good question. I think, um, hmm. I, I think maybe the way I traditionally came to the Bible and read scripture was with the assumption that it was talking to me directly. Hmm. But I, I think, you know, and here's a pretty big point um, the Bible wasn't written with us in mind. You know, and by us, I mean 21st century Americans, you know, uh, living in the modern age that we do. Right. You know, it was, it's an ancient document written by ancient people with, in a very, a culture very different from our own. So. uh, So this is the bold proposition that. This is not like a, like, this is, you know, like, obviously we know that, right? But do we really. Right. Know that when we're reading it. Yes. Yeah. And it's easy to lose sight of that. Yeah. For sure. But but you're what what I'm hearing you say is that that initially you didn't really have you you either didn't have that knowledge or that knowledge wasn't really being presented to you as you were engaging with scripture. You weren't really cognizant of that as you were approaching scripture. No, I, I certainly wasn't like aware of the historical context or the fact that, you know, there's um cultural uh, stuff tied into it that's that's very different from what we would what we consider our our norm why why did that matter like how how does that play so i mean again within the larger context of you know truth what do we believe scripture as some sort of a, an authority on what we believe and what is true mm-hmm. why did it matter that at that point in your life you were reading scripture that way well i i think uh what made that all of a sudden very important was the fact that um, I, I was starting to have more questions about science and about like historical accuracy, and that was coming into the Bible. You know, stuff about um, you know the age of the Earth and creation, and um, gotcha. whether you know we can trust the record set out in Genesis and that kind of thing. Yep. So, um, a lot of this was tied in with science, and so. Um, Another aha moment was kind of the fact that, okay, the Bible wasn't written with our modern understanding of science. Sure. Which yeah. also should, you know, should be obvious, but right. it's, it's really not as obvious as, as uh, we think because we are, are still trying to read it through our modern lens. And and I think this is where, where I need to um, make a distinction about truth. Hmm. Okay, when we talk about truth, what do we even mean? You know, I mean, is that, is that a question or is that a rhetorical question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think there's 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 definitely more than one kind of truth, and um, I think usually with our um, Western mindsets, when we think of in truth, we're thinking of empirical truth. We're thinking of something that, um, you know, it, it's a it's statistics, it's facts, it's something that you 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 collect data to arrive at a provable truth. 
empirical. So I think, I mean, my understanding of how philosophers would define truth is, and I mean, this is like an ancient idea, but just that tr- truth basically boils down to correspondence to reality, right? A statement is true if what it purports, what it, what it says is what is real. Mm-hmm. And that, so, I mean, I think truth itself is just that simple, but I think that there are lots of different, I guess we prioritize different kinds of truth. Like, I think I, I agree completely with you that there are different kinds of truth. That's the kind of truth that our culture prioritizes. Right. right. Is that we would prioritize, well, but all, so that's what's weird is because I think, well, you've probably heard people say things like live your truth. Live right. your, yeah, like Oprah says that. And right. like, you know, that's another thing. Like, well, I didn't what know is, that came from Oprah. What, what does that even mean? Right. Well, um, <laughs> right. Because it clearly doesn't mean. So that's it, not empirical truth. It means almost the exact opposite oh. of the kind of truth that you're talking about. Which is a very relativistic here. truth. Right. Right. But she's also clearly not talking about, I don't know, like how to build an airplane. She's not saying live your truth, build it however you want. If you want to build it out of spaghetti, go for it. She's talking way more about, you know, relational or spiritual truth. Right. And I, I think um, when we look at the Bible, that's our, our Western notions of empirical truth might be in there, but that's not the central. I mean, in the in the context of the, of the time it came from, there was more of that, you know, theological truths. Yeah. And, and there's, those are things that um, you, 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 you can't measure with, with data. You know, you can't measure that in the same way as you can. Um, right. Yeah. No, I think I, cause I do think that, I don't think that those things are immeasurable. I just think that they're well. So if, like if we're going to talk about relational truth, so like we could talk about our relationship to each other. Right. And I could make statements about the way that I relate to you or the way that I perceive you and vice versa. And those statements either do or don't correspond to reality. They are, they either are or not true. However, to, so in that sense, they are kind of measurable, but they're not measurable in the same way that, you know, I could say something like this table is 32 inches from the floor. That's something that's testable and measurable in a way with, with, I guess, with a different set of tools and to a different degree of specificity and accuracy than if I were to say something like, Aaron is my friend. Right. Or to say, you know, my wife loves me. Right. That's something that you can't measure in the same way. Right. But it's something that you either know or you don't know. Right. But yeah. it also, I mean, I think I would, I guess what I would want to say is that that's still true or false depending on, you know, if I say I love my wife and I don't, that's a false statement. Mm. Just like if I say this table is 42 inches off the ground and it's not, that's also a false statement. So they can both be true or false, but they're true or false in different ways and are, or, or rather they're true or false in the same way, but the way that we measure them is different. And the way that we engage with those kinds of truths is different. And even really their relevance, I guess, is different. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way of stating it. So uh, there's a lot of things we see in uh, in scripture that are non-empirical. Um, there's love, justice, beauty. Yeah, you know, and we know that these things exist. Right. I mean, we can't measure them in, in the same way. We can't collect data to, you know, prove the truth of them. But that doesn't make them any less true. Right. So maybe, and I mean, I think that's where. So when you specifically when you talk about justice, but I think also when you talk about love and beauty, you're talking about moral truth, right? Yeah, moral truth, yeah, or and, theological truth, whatever you want to call it. Right. And those are, so, again, with my, like, you know, intro to philosophy level philosophy hat on. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you have very different categories of reasoning when it comes to, you know, values and morality, like what ought to be versus, um, questions of empirical truth. What is right. So questions of, you know, the, the density of the table, like that's an empirical question. Whereas, you know, the question of, you know, how, how ought we to live or even how ought we to build this table? Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's even, you know, that's obviously a less um, important moral question, but still like, you know, how should we do something is a very different question than what is the state of the the world that we live in. Yeah. All right. So talk more. Why, why does that matter? That, that distinction between 
at least two different kinds of truth. Why does that matter for the way that we engage with scripture, even the way you have engaged with scripture? Well, I, I think, um, I think people can be kind of, um, defensive if any of the, um, any of the, um, you know, factual matters of scripture are questioned. You know, if you say, for instance, that you don't believe in a six day creation, for instance, well, also you don't believe the Bible is true. Gotcha. And, and in that, and that's where, you know, the word true becomes kind of a, uh, right. a sticking point there, you know? So that's, that's kind of the problem there is actually the uh, lack of clarification of terms. Right. For sure. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I guess that gets at the question. So you, you've referenced, um, the creation account in Genesis on more than one occasion in this conversation. And so it begs the question, what, what is God's intent for us to read from that story? Right. Mm -hmm. Like what does God want us to get from that? Is that a, you know, a scientific or empirical account of the creation of our planet or the universe, or is it something else? Sure. And and I think for most of my life, I would have um, considered that, well, that's a, obviously a scientific account of how the world came into being. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, was that even the intent of the author? Right. That's the thing. And, it, and to me, I'm um, looking at it, it seems very clear to me that it's, it's not so much a story of how exactly we came into being, but it, it's, it's more of a, um, more of an account of, of how, um, I don't know. It's 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 kind of hard to say, but it, it's it's less of a um, historical recounting of our origins, but more of a more of answering the why question: Why are we here? Why do we matter? What is our relationship with God? And reading into the um, the historical context of it, you know, getting into um, ancient Jewish tradition, the midrash, all these things where there's been centuries and centuries of theological interpretation about this, you know, before Christianity even came around. Right. Those are definitely the questions that the ancient Hebrews were trying to answer. Right. Not to mention 2000 years of Christian interpretation before you or I came around. Exactly. So to, <laughs> to think that we're like, we have this kind of arrogance that, you know, we're, we're, we're like, we're the first ones on the scene. Like, so our interpretation of it must be the right one. It's like, well, you have right. millennia of backstory where people have been discussing this. Right. And it's, and I think I would say this, that I've had, I've had this experience as a pastor on more than one occasion where people will say some version of, you know, I think I'm losing my faith because I'm having some, like I'm having some strange ideas or strange beliefs about, you know, what I think is true. I'm like, well, go like, tell tell me what you believe. Mm -hmm. And then they basically like tell me some version of, essentially Orthodox Christian doctrine. <laughs> and it's like, Nope, you're, you're cool. But what has happened is they, they were raised. I mean, I guess this is in some way part, part, part of what your story has been too, like raised in a particular Christian environment without any connection to the broader, you know, history of the church and what the church has taught historically on some of these questions. Yes. And so there really is a much broader spectrum of acceptable Orthodox Christian teaching then let's say, well, even what we teach in the vineyard or what is taught in the Baptist church or what is mm-hmm. taught in the Catholic church that again, Orthodox Christian thought encompasses all of those. Yeah, that's actually, that's, a, a, I'm glad you mentioned that because I mean, that was very much uh, a part of my story. And, and I, met, I mentioned this in the last podcast. Um, I, I was having a major crisis of faith a few years ago mm-hmm. and I thought my entire faith was unraveling due to the fact that uh I was having this understanding of the Bible that it wasn't what I thought it was right. kind of thing. And I was raised in a tradition that, um, you know, put very high value on inerrancy. And that became kind of like the be all and end all. Mm-hmm. You know, if you question that, if you question one small aspect of the Bible, you might as well th- throw the entire thing out because it doesn't have any value. Yeah. So, and it's, so it's kind of an all or nothing. So talk more about that, that value for inerrancy and what even what that word inerrancy meant to you at that point in your life. Like how was that defined? Well, I think, interestingly, I believed in inerrancy for most of my life without even knowing that I believed in it. Okay. Right? I mean, it wasn't until I started digging in and questioning these things that I even encountered that word. Yep. 
but clearly I, I always believed that just, you know, it was so embedded into the doctrine that I'd been taught that it wasn't even mentioned because it didn't need to be. It was one of those things that was just given as, as, as given it was, you know, it, it's so obvious that you don't even need to talk about it because it's, it's just inherent. Right. Um, yeah. So I <laughs> started doing some research and I, you know, I, was made very surprised to learn that, you know, that's not the way that uh, Christians have viewed the Bible throughout all of 2,000 years. Right. And in, in fact, it's, it's probably only in the last, you know, 500 or so that even began to just even have some relevancy. Right. And that all comes out of the Protestant Reformation. And, and you know, it really only became a major issue in the last 200 years. Right. So the Reformation now, um, probably I, I should give a little bit of a, a back. It's, it's all their fault. No, I should give a little bit of a backstory <laughs> just so people know what I'm talking about here. Right. So, um, uh, as we all know, in 1517, Martin Luther uh, hung up his 95 theses on on the church door in mm-hmm. uh, in Wittenberg. Uh, yeah, Luther, you know, he had 95 problems, and the Pope was one. The Pope was the one of the biggest one. Right and um, so the the biggest thing that the Protestants were challenging was the fact that uh, the the Pope's infallibility, um, the fact that he was considered uh, to be without error. You know, he was placed here, they believed by God, and so therefore, you know, he cannot fail. The Pope was a without error, but of course, all throughout the Middle Ages, there's many many demonstrations of the fact that the Pope was in fact very very in error right. in many things. And I don't need to go into all the uh, the moral shortcomings, but there were many. It, sh- should, uh, it was clear to anybody who was looking at it critically that, you know, the, the Pope is not an infallible messenger of God. So um, one of the things that they had to do was jettison the Pope. He's gone now. So now the church is without a head. It's kind of a problem because, hmm. well, where does ultimate authority on earth come from then, if not from the Pope? Right, and so it was the the idea of the reformers. Well, it's got to come from the Bible. Yep. So uh, the book then became the ultimate authority, and um, views about biblical authority definitely changed very much during the Reformation. And you know, uh, Luther was still kind of not entirely. I don't, I don't think he would have used the word inerrancy because it wasn't around yet, but. Um, he, he used the term sola scriptura, which means um, scripture only, right? As the one source. I mean, so in term, like in that, it's going in violation of, or go, I should say, going in rejection of tradition, right? So, authority of scripture takes the place of church tradition in this case. So simply, you're replacing one thing with another thing in order to um, keep the structure. Right. Intact or to build a new structure, you know. Prior, prior to the Protestant Reformation, the answer, how do you know what's true, would in some way, shape, or form be because the church told me. Yes. Right. And, Whereas, and you also have to remember that nobody, very, very few people, I should say, were literate in those days. Right. Um, prior to Gutenberg and the printing press, which just happened a few decades before the Reformation. This, right. this was brand new at the time. People were getting written copies of books and. Right literacy was exploding. You would have to argue that there's probably some sort of a causal relationship between the printing press and the Protestant Reformation. Oh, they go hand in hand. Right. Yeah. Like without the printing press, there would have been no Protestant Reformation. Yep. Because for the first time in history, the Bible was widely available to all people. They could read it on their own. Right. Which means they didn't need the church to tell them what it means and how to interpret it, which is huge. If yep. you think about the repercussions of that, it's, you know, gives people a lot of responsibility that they didn't used to have. Mm-hmm. For 1,500 years, most people had never even seen a Bible, maybe behind a glass case or so, somewhere, you know, but mm-hmm. most of the Bibles in existence were in monasteries. They were being hand-copied by by monks. The average human had no interaction with it. So f- they couldn't necessarily base their life on an infallible document because they didn't have one. Right. And yet you still had Christians for 1500 years, you know, they were not any less Christian than you and I are now, you know, it'd be kind of arrogant for us to say that, you know, finally people got it 
after 1500 years, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I I think that's one of the things that we kind of lose sight of is the fact that people have not always looked at things the way we look at them now. Well, but so you talked a little bit about kind of the, the historical origins of, I guess what we would call a high view of scripture. Mm. Uh, that's not fair either, because I don't think you're necessarily rejecting what what would be considered a high view of scripture. But but that, well, kind of a wooden literal um, approach to scripture. Yeah, you're tracing that back to, um, in some way, shape, or form, the change that happened in the church during the Reformation. Yeah, that was that was definitely one of the the biggest changes. You know, the Westons. Westminster Confession maybe gave it more clarity, more words to it. And then it wasn't until the Enlightenment that um, it actually started to be a debate about whether, right. you know, we look at it this as a um, a, a document who's, it's, that is perfect in all forms, you know, historical, scientific, whatever, versus in another way. Right. Right. So. Well, and you, you hinged on that word inerrancy. Mm. What, so why, why is that important to you? Well, I think uh, I want to just say that I think for a lot of people there's this dualism, there's this duality, this either or, this kind of black and white thinking. So it's either inerrant or it's just a bunch of fairy tales. Right. Right. And so if and you, by inerrant, like clarify what you mean by that. Like either it's inerrant or it's a bunch of fairy tales. So inerrant means what? With, without error in all matters, you know, historical, scientific, uh, um however you want to look at it. And so, well, so there's, I've heard, I've heard two different versions of, well, I've heard more than two. I've heard two broad versions of the idea of inerrancy. One is that, um, well, when Christ says that we're to be gentle as doves, that means that we're to lay eggs, right? And it's kind of like, uh, That's kind of like a silly version of inerrancy where it's like, hey, Okay, you're talking about like strict literalism. Right. Yeah, right. So, you know, and I've never met any Christians who have gouged out their eyes or chopped their hands off. So, you but, know, I guess nobody takes it entirely literal. Well, you know. But, <laughs> so, for example, um, the, there are there are questions, and I, I mean, we talked a little bit about this the last time we, we talked, that I've done a lot more homework personally and research on um, the histor- historical questions uh, in the New Testament than I have in the Old Testament. So mm-hmm. my my understanding of the historicity of some of the Old Testament texts is a lot more spotty in terms of what I'm aware of and what scholars are talking about. And I mean, there's definitely some parts of the Old Testament that I've done plenty of research on, but the vast majority of it, I wouldn't necessarily know. But I do know, for example, that there there are debates among scholars about, for example, the book of Job, whether or not they believe that there was a real job or not. Like, is this, is this a, some sort of a historical account of a real person or is this something much more like one of Jesus's parables? Right. Mm. Um, right. And there's, there's debate about that. And I don't know enough to have any kind of an opinion about that yeah, at sure. all. Right. Um, but, but we wouldn't say that if it's a parable that somehow means that it doesn't, that it's matter. any less true. Right. right. Or that exactly. But that, so, but then we wouldn't necessarily call Jesus's parables errant either. Like we wouldn't say that they have error in them, but it also doesn't necessarily make sense to call them inerrant either. You see, that's the problem is, you know, we need to do justice to the forms of literature that they are. Right. A parable is a parable. It is not right. a truth statement, but that doesn't mean, right. Or at it, least it doesn't it's not that, a claim about what mean, happened in right. history. That doesn't mean that Jesus is telling lies to his followers. Right. Not at all. He is using the story form to convey a deeper truth. Right. And in some sense or another, all of the Bible works in that way. Um, I look, think that's look, fair. Look at the literary form of Job. It is in the poetry section of the Bible. It is a work of poetry. Right. Um, is poetry true? Uh, well, well, whether it happened or not, I mean, there's, there's poetry about the Trojan War. We know that the Trojan War happened, but, right. you know, did everything that happened in the Iliad actually happen? Probably not. Probably not. Right. Did anything that happened in the, in the book of Job actually happen? Well, that's missing the point. The right. point is there is immense wisdom and truth within Job, you know, and at the center of it is 
the nature of God. Right. And the meaning of suffering. Right. And that's what Job was designed to answer. Right. You know. But I guess, so this is, this is I, the question that I have in that is about the use of, and I think you and I are on the same page on this, but I'm, I'm like, I, I'm just asking the question, is the use of the word inerrancy is something that at least in some way, shape, or form you want to take off the table, but you had defined inerrancy as without error. Without error. Right. right? And so the assumption that some might make is, well, if we're not going to say that scripture is inerrant, are we saying that it is errant, that it has error? Is that what we're saying? Because that obviously is very, di- like you, that's why I was saying mm-hmm. there's roughly two different versions of like right. inerrancy. One is that every single statement in scripture is true, no matter how stupidly you interpret it. And it's like, well, that, I hope that that's not what we mean by inerrancy. And yet that's oftentimes what people do mean by right. inerrancy. And, and some people do take that. I mean, I, I kind of consider that an extreme view, but um, the fact is there's many Christians who take that view. Right. And I, I think I, I want to state just so that there's not this contention, like there's not a right way and there's not a wrong way to read scripture. I mean, I think there's good ways and I think there's better ways. Okay. So yeah. if, you know, you read... I don't know, though. I think we have to agree that there are at least some bad there ways. There are definitely okay, some bad right. ways. There definitely are. Right. Because <laughs> I, I would I would want to test that hypothesis right now on this podcast. <laughs> We're going to come up with some bad ways to read Scripture. <laughs> well, no, there are, uh, there are clearly very bad ways to read right. Scripture. I mean, when we look at, uh, for instance, I'll take the account of the conquest of Canaan. If we look at that as a how-to guide, uh, uh, that's a very, very bad way. How to treat your neighbors? Yes. Like, people die as a result of that interpretation. So that's good. Yep. I I don't believe it's a how-to, okay? You know, we need to look at that story very critically. And, um, you know, if if we assume that every, every action and thing that happened in the Bible was because God you know, spoken into existence and, and demanded it, you know, then I don't think that's a very healthy view. Right. But if we look at it as uh, humans, very fallible humans who often made mistakes, which is very demonstrable by, by reading it, then I, I think we're getting, we're, we're in a healthier place then looking at it that way. Well, and I guess it, it does get at the, the question of, the intent of what we're reading, the which you know begs questions about genre and you know literary and historical context, and I mean it seems like at the end of the day, if you were going to sum up, kind of like the the important thing to take away from the way we ought to engage with scripture, is that there needs to be an extra step added between reading and obeying when it comes to scripture and that step, I mean, it'd just be called in, interpreting, but that we actually have to take the time to really do, do our homework when we're interpreting scripture. Is that fair? Oh my gosh. Yes. That's very fair. I mean, uh, we have to do due diligence to the text. We can't. And, and I think the mistake that many, many people make is they pull things out of context. They, they cherry pick the scripture for the results that, Right, they're hoping for. I mean, there's an uh, there's an old antidote in it. You know, this is obviously fiction, but there's a um, a guy who was just very troubled and down on his luck and trying to figure out what to do. So he opened the Bible to get some wisdom, and he opened up to the passage that said, "And Judas went and hung himself." Right. He didn't like that, so he closed the Bible. He opened it up again. Uh, he got to the passage that said, "Go and do likewise." Oh, Ugh, horrible! So one more time, he dipped in, stuck his finger on a passage. What you're about to do. Go and do it quickly. <laughs> so it, it, it's it's a funny story. It's a joke, but you know right. it, it just shows the absurdities you can get to if you try and like, um, right? You know, right? Well, but, so that's interesting too, though. I mean, because I would imagine that. So you you had made a statement earlier in in this conversation that we're having now that you used to believe that scripture was here to speak to you. Um, and what you were contrasting that with is that you have come to understand that scripture wasn't written directly to Aaron. It was written to other people 
it's still for you though. And it right. still is, I would assume you believe that God is still speaking to you through scripture. So, oh, absolutely. So talk. Right. So I, I don't want to say a, that, like, right. I don't believe that scripture is speaking to us. Right. It's Which def- that's not what I heard you that's, say, that's but it I'm is saying. the words that right. came out of your mouth. So talk more about that. Okay. Scripture is not speaking to us directly. It's not saying, you know, you go up, and do likewise. Yeah. You don't know, open up to the book of Jeremiah and, you know, find who you're going to marry, you know, what college you're going to go to, what career you're going to have. Right. Because I think maybe the error there is we come into the Bible expecting it to give us answers. And the Bible was never designed to give us answers. Hmm. It was very much designed to give us wisdom. Yeah. And no, I, think there's, I think there's a very big difference there that, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it seems subtle, but actually um, it really um, changes the way that we look at it. I mean, would, would you say, so I would agree with that as like a general statement that the Bible is not here to give us answers, but rather to give us wisdom. Mm. But I think you would agree that there are at least some questions that it is attempting to answer. Like there are mm. some answers in scripture. It's just. Right. I think we can, you know, be very clear that the Bible is giving us a, you know, a bold and clear statement on who Jesus is. Right. Things like that. I think it's very clear about, but I think maybe when it comes to, you know, how we should live our lives morally, those are things that it, it takes a lot more of us wrestling with it. Right. And praying. Right. And um, I think that's the point all along is we need the Holy Spirit as a guide mm. when, when it comes to interpreting scripture. Yeah. It, it's not as plain and as clear as we would want it to be. Yeah. And I don't think that that's a liability necessarily. I think that's actually a good thing because it, it causes us to do the hard work of, of wrestling and trying to use our own understanding and our own um, capacities to come up with something meaningful from it rather than just being right. spoon fed the answers. Well, and I mean, this is something I'm pretty sure the first person I ever heard say this was my pastor back in California, but we sometimes approach scripture almost with the implicit assumption that God accidentally gave us the wrong kind of a book. Right. So that Mm -hmm. what he, what he meant to give us was, you know, uh, a a book with questions and answers, you know, it's here's the the answer answer guide, the owner, the owner's manual, right. That that's what he meant to give us, but he accidentally gave us a book of stories and poetry and, and it's our job to like <laughs> remedy God's mistake by taking this book of ancient poetry and, you know, um, again, yeah. letters and whatnot, prophecies, and then like kind of like cutting and pasting it back into like the, the answer book that God meant to give us. Yes, exactly. And so I think, so it, <laughs> that's funny, but, it but, funny, but true but, because I mean, but true. Yeah. So much of the time you have to like bend over backwards to try and make it into that answer book that it's not. That it's very, you know, the Bible doesn't behave the way that we want it to. We want it to be very straightforward. We want to be able to open up to a certain chapter, certain verse, and have the explicit answer laid out for us. Right. But it it, it doesn't work. It doesn't behave that way. No, it does not. (laughs) It's it's utterly frustrating, especially when there's contradictory uh, advice on different um, moral issues. So is there an example of something like, you know, you talked about, contradictory moral advice on the same issue. Is there like an example from your own life where that was relevant or where this, like this, this shift in, in approaching scripture that you have gone through and that um, I think both of us are actually encouraging all people to go through, right? Like don't, don't see scripture this way, see it in this more, I would argue. And I think you would argue accurate, but also expansive view. What, how, like how, is there a pl- is there a place where you could say this is where the rubber hit the road for me on this issue or in this area of my life or in this story this passage of scripture? Well, um, yeah, I mean, maybe one of the biggest ones for me was um, was uh, the, the issue of uh, peace and pacifism. Okay, because that's very much the message that Jesus is conveying throughout. You know, blessed are the peacemakers and. Um, turn the other cheek. Yeah. And, you know, pretty much his entire ministry was uh, peace-oriented. Yeah. Yet we see quite the opposite throughout the Old Testament. Okay. We see a very um, very vengeful, very tit-for-tat kind of a um, 
way of living and going about things. Hmm. And in many of those instances, violence is divinely justified, or so it appears. Right. And for me, that was one of the biggest, biggest contradictions to wrestle with is, well, how do you, how do you reconcile that? And, and, you know, and a lot of people give the, the simple answer, well, well, Jesus was just um, showing a new way. You know, the, the old ways of the past no longer apply. Well, why do we still have the Old Testament? And it, it's very problematic in a, in a lot of places where, you know, there's things that are very counterintuitive to, like, the moral compass inside that that longs for peace. So, um, so what do you do with that? Yeah. I mean, there's whole volumes of books that are written on that exact mm-hmm. question. Right. It even seems like God himself had a entire, uh, personality change mm-hmm. between the old and new testaments. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just right. saying that like, if you were to take the Bible in face value, it certainly appears that way. Yeah. I mean, I think I've heard, I've heard lots of people say what you just said. And so I definitely wouldn't say that that seems to be, um, like that's not a surprising thing for somebody to read the Bible and come away with. Right. I'll say it like that. Like Jesus says to love your neighbor and in the old Testament, God apparently is advocating genocide. So, right. And you know, there's been all kinds of explanations. Right. I've heard of this over the years. Um, right. Exactly. I think that's the that's the one thing that I would bring to the to that conversation is just that there are there are other like plenty of people have read scripture and come away with a different um just a different take without necessarily I guess I'll say it this way. Clearly there is something to reconcile between Jesus's um posture toward violence and the posture toward violence that God takes in the old Testament. There is clearly something to reconcile there. It has to be reconciled. For sure. That's not a question that you can just go, eh, not a question. You can't brush that under the table. That's, that's a biggie. Right. So, so like, how, how do you deal with that? What's, what's your approach? Well, so I think I probably lean a lot more in the direction of, um, I guess two things. One, well, I wasn't prepared for this conversation, <laughs> uh, but that's fine. It's totally fine. Okay. So I'm, I'm got perfect. you thinking on your feet, right? That's good. Well, I mean, that's kind of what we're doing anyway. Yeah, like right. We did. It's not like we had like planned our whole conversation out, but um, I guess a few things that I would point out. So, like, as long as you don't hear this as like Steve's exhaustive answer to this question, but just kind of like yeah, yeah. response. Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, I'm I'm not a pacifist. Um, I think that as Christians, we should lean in that direction. I think scripture is pretty clear that, um, you know, we shouldn't be um, jumping to violence to defend ourselves or others or the nation state or anything like that. Like, that's just not, that's not a Christian posture. Um, Having said that, I also don't think either in the Old Testament or the New Testament that I could read the whole book and come away saying, there are no circumstances under which a Christian should engage in violence. I can't, I can't quite get there. Um, I can, I can get pretty close, Uh um, but I can't quite get there. But that doesn't mean that I like disrespect people who are pacifists or, you know, like I, I, again, I think most of what, most of the church's relationship to violence throughout the history of the church, even I would say today, I would condemn and say that Uh we're too violent or too quick to violent. Um, behavior of course right but, and, and how much of that do you think has been used by getting the, the bible to justify their actions well yeah sure but i think that that's what we do with everything so that's that's how mm-hmm. that that's how we justify our lustful behavior that's how we you know what i mean like we're we we justify our materialism we justify our like i so i do think but but again so for me i i like and I didn't really answer the question you asked, which was like, how do okay. you reconcile those two things? Right, and I would, I would also, you know, as much of a pacifist as I am, I would have to concede that there are, there are, there are times when you do have to stand up. Right. You know, when there's 
an injustice that needs to be righted. You know, there there are times as Christians when we do need to be right. proactive and not turn the other cheek. Right. So, that, once again, that's going back to wisdom versus right. You know, a very clear cut answer. Right. Right. So, and, and I think like everything needs to be weighed. Yep. Circumstantially. Every circumstance has a different answer. Right. You know, there's not one be all, one size fits all kind of. If we're looking for that, we're not ever going to find that. Well, and I think that that for me is a part of the way that I would want to approach the Old Testament stories about God either directly engaging in violence, which that also, you know, seems to be something that the New Testament points towards, um, or encouraging his people to engage in violence. Right. And yeah. that which which you don't see in the New Testament. Right. Um, but how I would like how I would approach that is by understanding that I guess the the and I actually think this is like somewhat of a quote or a paraphrase from N.T. Wright. But, you know, he talks about the God of the Old Testament being a God who was willing to get into the mud and the grime with his people Um because that was really the only way that God could actually redeem us. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, for God to be, for God to engage with human beings who were fallen required God to engage with human beings that were fallen. God had a stoop. Right. In other words, God stooped to our level. Basically. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I mean that, that's, that's not N.T. Wright's words. No, it's not. But, um, I, I agree with him in that sense that like, um, God had to get down to where we were, and a lot of times that's a very, very broken place. Right. And does that make God morally compromised and broken? Well, so and, and I think maybe maybe I'm opening up a whole Pandora's right, box here. Exactly. But, I um, would say no, but I yeah. can understand why some would say yes. Right. Right. So I mean, even the whole notion of sacrifice that we see in the Old Testament, I I believe was God accommodating to where where people were at at that point, because as we find out later, God really has no desire for sacrifice. Mm-hmm. He requires mercy and justice and obedience. Right. And and yet he went along with this human sacrificial system for over a thousand years of, of, in the temple, you know? So in a very real way, that is God accommodating to where people were at. Right. They weren't ready for the next step yet spiritually. So God met them halfway, I guess you could say, or, even 90% of the way. Right. Yeah. And I, I guess that's, for me, that's definitely part of the way that I would want to reconcile what I, I mean, you clearly, you see Jesus, if not advocating pacifism, manifesting pacifism, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. he, he clearly models it. Um, and in a way that, you know, God does not expect of his people in the old Testament. Yeah. Right. So I think there is a higher standard for living that's being, introduced mm-hmm. you know what used to be morally acceptable you know we're, we're gonna move on to the next level here <laughs> we're because we're ready for it level up level up yeah sure <laughs> like i think in a very real way that's what's happening right no i would agree with that and yeah. i mean i believe that even continues off the pages of the bible which which clearly it does i mean we no longer believe that slavery is acceptable you know we've we believe now that women are equal and there's, there's, there's been many things where I think we, we have had more moral insights mm. since the Bible, you know, I mean, but even, even that for, there was a pretty strict debate amongst Christians. There were very, very seriously minded abolitionists who were Christians, but there was very serious Christians who were defenders of slavery. Sure. Both were using, the Bible to justify their position. Right. Right. So, well, but so are we, I guess, (laughs) so, so there's a lot of different ways you could, you could slice that pie, right? Mm -hmm. Are we saying that one side was right and the other was wrong? Or are we saying that the Bible isn't clear on that? Or like what, like, so if we're going to tackle the question of, you know, First of all, what does the Bible teach about slavery? Second of all, you know, is like, mm-hmm. should, I mean, I, it seems like an obvious question to answer. Should good, should good Christians own slaves? Right. But, it's pretty obvious from our vantage point here. 
But I, I think what I'm saying is the answer to both questions or just to one to, to what? Well, I mean, I'm saying we've evolved morally as a society, as a society collectively right. we have, and that's a good thing. But what is the role of scripture in that evolution? I, I believe it's, it's been a uh, kind of push and pull throughout the centuries to where we are now. Like we need to consistently wrestle with scripture and, it's not so much that scripture takes on new meaning, but it can certainly be applied differently in different places when um, the circumstances demand it. Does, it. does that make sense? I mean, that was sure. Kind of, no, no, no. I, I guess my question. So on the on the question of like scripture and slavery. So the, historically speaking, in our country at least, there were Christians who were arguing pro-slavery, quoting scripture to do so. Right. Were they wrong? I think, you know, looking back, we can say, yes, they were wrong. But, okay. you know, <laughs> at, at the time, they were convinced that they were only being faithful to Scripture, though. But they but, were wrong. But they were wrong. And I and I think that we need to hold that in the palm of our hand in the, in the present day with a whole lot of humility. That's fair. And say, okay, there are many things that we cling to for dear life right. that we believe to be unquestionable truths that in another 100, 200 years, the Christian consensus might be very, very different about. Right. And and just hold that with humility of, okay, we might be wrong about some things. No, I think that's, that's uh, an incredibly important lesson to take away from that. I guess I just, so, I mean, I certainly have heard, so even just in, in coming to, to this conversation with you, I, I like Googled, you know, science and Bible or something like that. And I watched, <laughs> okay. I watched some video of some guy who had like 41 reasons why, you know, Christians are idiots because the Bible is full of these, you know, he had this list of scientific inaccuracies. Right. And, and it just, it, it, and it was all the things that you would expect. It was him pulling statements out of poetic sections of scripture mm-hmm. that were, clearly not intended as any kind of scientific statement about anything whatsoever. And then proceeding to explain why these scientific statements were wrong. And it's like, well, but that's not, that's not a debunking of scripture. That's a failure to understand what scripture is saying. Right. And that's going back to the literary forms that we talked about earlier. Right. Right. I mean, we could look at, you know, in Psalms, they talk about the pillars of the earth. Right. You know, did anyone even at that time believe that that was the literal case? Did the person who wrote it or the people who read it believe right. that? And the answer would be no. I think it's pretty easy to understand that's a poetic device. Right. And there's many such poetic devices in, in the Bible. Well, so how that, so then then the question is, you know, so people are pointing at places in Scripture where Scripture either fails to condemn slavery or even in some places makes some statements that seem to that imply. seem pretty much like it's condoning it. Right. Yeah. And what do we do with that? Right. Well, so that's the the question then becomes like, is scripture teaching us that we ought to a own slaves and B build societies where slavery is a part of the society or not? Right. Well, I think this is where we have to look at the big picture and what is the big picture of scripture say? And it says very clear things about human worth and dignity right? and the value of human life. Right. And, you have to weigh that against, you know, these little verses here and there taken, pulled from their context, you know? What, what is the bigger narrative right. telling us? Well, so, I mean, again, I would, I look at scripture, both some of those specific verses around, um, you know, what, what scripture has to say about slaves and masters, particularly in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. And I don't see an endorsement of slavery at all, Um what I see is um, something very different from that. And yeah. so when somebody says to me, well, you know, this book is endorsing slavery, that I just, I'm un, I remain unconvinced. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. I mean, to me, it, it seems like it's never explicitly condemning it. Right. So therefore, at the very least, it accepts that it's a reality. Right. At the very least. I mean, right. there, there's certain points where it, it certainly seems to me like it is in favor of it. Um, where where would you say that? 
Well, I think in the book of Philemon, you see that, you know, he's, um, and Eslimus is being encouraged to go back to his owner, you know, to be a faithful slave is to, mm-hmm. and, and like, I, I guess I would say if I were to write that, it would be a story of justice and liberation, you know, but of course I didn't because what we also see that in the Bible too. We see the Exodus, which is a story of justice and liberation from slavery. Well, what so would you say we, is we the both. point? To, what would you say is the point of Philemon? Uh, it's a story of obedience, I think. Um, I, I I can't say it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible because it's still just <laughs> I I can't get over this fact that like, you know, he's like the anti Harriet Tubman. You know, you're like go back to where you came from, boy. You know, like. <laughs> So, um, I don't know. Yeah, it's not one of my favorites, but I, th- I think I, I think we can glean from it that, you know, he had worth as a child of God, and that was his identity more, much more so than his ident- identity as a slave. So I'll give it that at least. Well, but I guess I also would say I don't see in it advice to senators on how to vote when it comes to building... A society. Oh no, no. And so you know, the idea that that it's somehow an endorsement of slavery and society, or even I don't see in it either, uh, you know, an endorsement for Christians to go out and purchase slaves. Either, what I see in it is um, an admonition for people for two different people who find themselves in very different places in society one who finds himself a slave owner and one who finds himself a slave, and yet both of whom have professed their faith in Christ, there's this direction from the Apostle Paul for both of them to engage in the place in society that they find themselves in with as much faith and devotion and love as they can. And the question of whether or not they ought to work to change that, you know, to change the nature of society isn't even a question in that particular, I mean, it's a short letter, Mm, you know? And so, so the question of the nature of society and whether or not God likes slavery isn't a question that I see addressed in that short chapter at all. Okay. That's probably why it bugs me because I'm someone who just wants to shake up the social order, you know? And to me, that's a story's like, dang it, that's a missed opportunity. Yes. Right. But, but I mean, I guess that's where it also gets at the question of like, you know, what is scripture? And Mm. there are different, like, at the end of the day, scripture isn't one thing. It's actually, you know, right. six, 66. It's well, many, many whatever. different voices. At least a dozen know. different things. Yeah, it's not one author. And so to your point, there are places in scripture where God, in my estimation, makes it really clear, hey, you shouldn't own people as slaves, um, right? You shouldn't build societies where people are oppressed. You shouldn't do these things that this isn't. Mm-hmm. But also in that particular place in scripture, that particular letter, um you know, God is saying to these two people, this is where you find yourself in what is clearly a messed up world. But as, as my people in this world, here's how you ought to act in the station that you're in, Hmm. which is not necessarily an endorsement of, you know, I, 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 I would find it hard to believe that Paul was endorsing Roman society and politics and economics Hmm. probably ever. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, Paul does talk a bit in Romans, especially about submitting to authority. So Mm -hmm. there's that. But he, but, but he also doesn't seem to be making any claim that, 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 that authority is somehow moral or, I mean, it has moral authority because society needs authorities. And that's essentially the reason why Paul encourages Christians to submit, but he's not claiming that that somehow makes these, you know, he's not saying might makes right. He's not saying just because Caesar is Caesar means that he's doing the right thing. He's just saying, look, society needs a Caesar. We've got one. That's our Caesar. So we should submit. But right. like, and, and I do think that that is being faithful to the example of Christ too. Right. Who said to give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, you know, and he certainly was not looking to usurp Roman authority. Right. So I, I do think that's valid. But it's not necessarily an endorsement of the Roman system or the Roman system of slavery. Okay, yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, he's just saying it, it is what it is, kind of, you know, it's 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 the re- it's the present reality that, right? You know. And I can understand from your perspective 
being frustrated that Paul missed an opportunity to condemn the system. Right, right. Just, I mean, just think of like the repercussions I would have had in history. Well, hopefully. <laughs> well, yeah. Maybe or maybe not, though. And, and I like, I, I, if I were to write scripture, if it was like Steve's book, it would be similar to Aaron's book in that it would have some clearer condemnations of, of the institution of slavery in the new Testament. Um, I would put that in there, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, for whatever reason, God in his wisdom didn't. And that, that letter contains wisdom for sure. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Right. Yeah. And I think that's another interesting point. It's like, uh, you know, there, there are many times where I'm like, well, I wouldn't have written it that way. If I would have written it, like throughout the Bible, there's just many, many, many circumstances where I'm like, no, no. Yeah. But that's the thing, you know, it wasn't written to us and it wasn't, uh, <laughs> it, it had supreme relevance to the, the people it was addressed to at the time. Right. You know, if you look at Paul's letters, uh, that's 2000 year old male that we're reading. <laughs> it is. 100%. <laughs> you know? So just take that into consideration you know it wasn't written with our present concerns in mind well so maybe i don't know where would you want to um so we we had talked about maybe talking about science we obviously don't (laughs) have really room for that now but maybe we can do a a third third Uh, conversation i got i got a whole thing on galileo and all that but (laughs) it's just not the place for it (laughs) no well so where how how should we land the plane we've been talking about scripture and truth and um i mean definitely have explored some of the like some wrong ways to interpret scripture. But also I think even like the conversation you and I just had about Philemon, in some ways that models what you have been talking about, which is more of a wrestling with the text. And um, I mean, I think again, you and I engaged in a conversation about a chunk of scripture and how it applies that I think both of us would say was meaningful and was respectful of the authority of scripture without necessarily approaching scripture in, you know, what you are reacting against as kind of like that quote unquote inerrant mm-hmm. approach to scripture. Right. And and I, I think maybe like, let's try and define authority. And I think the authority of scripture is whatever authority we give it in our life. Mm-hmm. Like how, how valuable is that truth to how we live our life? Yeah. So that's played out in practice. Right. It's not a matter of reading it and the words themselves having authority. It's like what what relevance, like what, how do they change us? Right. Are, are, are we being shaped by it? Are, are, is our life different as a result? Yeah. That's the question we should be asking, not whether, you know, anything about the literal truth of the words on the page, but like how does it, how does it change us from the inside out? Yep. And I think that's where we, you know, rely on the Holy Spirit to give us uh, that guidance, to give us wisdom. And, and like I said before, and I'll, I'll reiterate this, I think it's all about wisdom rather than answers, mm. you know, for approaching it as an answer book. Yeah, that's not the best way to read it. Right. Well, and yeah, yeah. That's that's probably a, a good place to, I guess I shouldn't say stop, but maybe push pause. Yeah, maybe sure. We, maybe, <laughs> we can, maybe we can come back to uh, another conversation about truth and authority and scripture. Uh, maybe we'll tackle science. You know, that, that's been, that's been something that, I mean, it, that's important for me as well, but right. I know for you, that's been, it's been a, a big, big part of your journey. Biggie. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Yeah. So that's kind of where I've landed with uh, authority. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's become a very personal thing and um, yeah. you know, how does this, um, how does this uh, affect me in my life personally? Yeah. Like how am I different because of, because of reading this. Right. Well, I think that's a, that's a question that we should always be asking some version of that question. Every time we read scripture is, you know, it, I mean, there certainly are, there's nothing wrong with approaching scripture, trying to gain, I don't know, like esoteric truth from it. Like there, there are truth, truth claims in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it shouldn't stop there. It really should move beyond what does it say and into, okay, so now how should I live? How should I act? Who should I be? Yeah. Right. I think that's what, where our focus needs to be rather than 
you know, just the words on the page and trying to like parse whether they're true or not. It's like the truth value is determined by how it changes us, Mm. how, how we react accordingly. Yeah, that's interesting. So, um, it just reminded me, where is that? It's in, I think it's in John, John 15, but where Jesus says, um, uh, if you're my disciples, you'll do what I say. You'll put into practice the things that I'm you'll telling put my you. Words into action. And then if you actually do that, then you will be, um, then you'll know the truth and then the truth will set, will you, set you free. free right? right. And so there's this like progression. Yes. So, and, and you know, that, that statement, the truth will set you free gets quoted all over the place. But do people even stop and really think about what that means? No. Well, so what people think it means is if I can gain true information, Get all the answers, then the answers will set me free. Right. <laughs> so what, what Jesus actually says is, is, is what you just said that, that you won't know the truth of what I'm saying until you've actually heard it, obeyed it, put it into practice. And then you will know that what I'm telling you is true and then you'll be free. And so, yes. so freedom isn't the end product of gaining factual information, but rather freedom and wisdom are both the end product of essentially obedience to Jesus. Bam. Nailed it <laughs> right. right there. Yeah. So you got to live it, man. Yeah. That's where it is. That's Aaron Belleville. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Well, cool, man. This was fun. Yeah. This is awesome. Thanks. Yeah. And uh we'll we'll do it again. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks.